You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Steve Vogel and Bern von Koska. Steve is a reporter for the National Staff of the Washington Post, who covers the federal government and frequently writes about the military and veterans. Based overseas from 1989 through 1994 and reporting for the Post and Army Times, he covered the fall of the Berlin Wall and the first Gulf War, and subsequently reported on military operations in Somalia, Rwanda, the Balkans, Afghanistan, and Iraq. He also covered the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon and its subsequent reconstruction. He is the author of Through the Perilous Fight, The Pentagon of History, and now Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. Bern von Koska is the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin, which is a must-see if you find yourself there. Along with journalist Sven Felix Kellerhoff, he's the author of Capital of Spy, Secret Services in Berlin in the Cold War, which is still only unreleased in Germany, unfortunately, but it sounds like we might be moving towards an English version, fingers crossed. However, one can get many of the educational publications from the Allied Museums in English from their website, many of which Byrne was, was deeply involved in. And the museum itself is a language friendly, uh, and everything is trilingual, and the museum is free. So don't miss it if you're in Berlin, and it's somewhere you absolutely have to go. So gentlemen, Steve, Byrne, thank you so much for joining us here today on SpyCast. Pleasure to be here. Hello. So let me start with you, Steve. You've been working on this book for quite some time, uh, and I imagine you've probably mentally been working on it for many, many years longer than that. And can you tell a little bit about what brought you to write about this topic? You know, I, I've always felt uh, a bit of a connection to Berlin. Um, I was born there. My dad was uh, stationed there as a case officer with the CIA back in the, the real heyday of espionage in Berlin. Of course, I didn't know anything about that at the time, but um, I, I went back to Germany uh, as a uh, student studying German and you know did a bike trip through uh, all of Germany. And we went to Berlin and through Checkpoint Charlie and 
And then uh, I found myself there in, in 1989 as uh, right before the wall came down and was freelancing. And of course, as soon as that news came, came over uh, the transom, I, I headed up to Berlin and uh, I'd only planned on staying in Berlin, you know, uh, or in Germany for a few months, but ended up staying five years. So mm -hmm. I, I really, um, you know, felt a connection to the city. And um, my dad had died quite some years ago. And then uh, in recent years, some of his colleagues were, were dying too, friends of the family. And I'd always heard bits and pieces about, you know, the the life of the spies in, in Berlin and what it was like. And um, I realized that a lot of that generation was, was going fast. And I, I kind of decided that if I was going to write a story about what Berlin was like as a um, during the espionage um, heydays in the in the late 50s, uh, now was the time to do it. And the Berlin Tunnel was a story that really struck me as, as an amazing one. Yeah, I mean, it's now or never for a lot of these because you're yeah. just losing the, the, really the primary source, which is the people themselves. And it's one thing if there's documents lying around, but most of this stuff, because it's so secret, you actually need to go to the source because there's not a lot of evidence yeah, otherwise. that's so true. I mean, a lot of these stories are only in people's heads because, I mean, that was one of the mantras of the whole... Berlin Tunnel was that you weren't supposed to put anything in writing. Right. And that was, was something that uh, they lived <laughs> lived yeah. by, unfortunately. But there were some documents here and there, so it's right. not impossible. So, Steve, ironically, you were in Berlin when the wall came down, but Bern, you were not. You, you, were, you were hundreds of miles or hundreds of kilometers away uh, watching it from afar, which is a really interesting perspective as a German watching what was happening in Germany from another country. That's right. I was an exchange student at uh, Stafford uh, Polytechnic, now Kiel University, and I was the only German there. And uh, one morning, one morning, the guys came in. And I said, "Oh, incredible! Have you heard?" And and I haven't because uh, the, the the news were reporting on demonstrations, but nobody actually thought the wall would came down. So I was. Uh, caught totally by surprise and uh, yes and then the whole um, afternoon I was sitting in front of the television set uh, watching what's going on in Berlin. Well it's interesting when we ask both of you this because you know as someone who's there covering as a freelancer you know politics in the military and stuff and someone who is obviously in school for a higher degree uh, someone who's lived in the in Central Europe uh, if you want to call Germany that uh, for years how much of what was happening in 1989 leading up to November of 1989 kind of hinted at what was coming. Now, in hindsight, we can kind of see a linear projection from Poland and solidarity at the beginning of the year all the way through the Berlin Wall coming down. But is that historical hindsight or were there hints at real changes taking place? May I answer that first? Uh, just a couple of uh, months ago, I had an interview with the police president at the time of uh, unification. And um, he said they were aware of uh, huge changes and um, only a few weeks uh, in the future they were awaiting uh, a relaxed um, movement policy from East Germany. And, and even in October they had meetings how they would host all the people that come over on a legal basis. At that time, they were expecting a legal exchange of um, citizens. Uh, but those were the signs already there. But uh, it comes so quick that ex actually nobody expected it. But there were signs before. Yeah, sure. I mean, there had been a, a, a stream of refugees who were 
going to the embassies um, in in Austria and Czechoslovakia, you know, hoping to get uh, a way out. But you know, people who say they, that they knew it was coming right. <laughs> are kind of pulling your leg. And I mean, I, I was uh, you know clueless too. I mean, I was in Munich in my apartment watching Mr. Ed because I was trying to improve my German. <laughs> they had it, you know, subtitles and all that. And all of a sudden, they they ran script underneath saying, you know, the wall is falling. So it was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you I mean, because you look at I take the American Civil War as an example, right, where a, a country is divided and, you know, uh, the war ends or some kind of a Cold War in this case ends. I'm using Berlin in kind of a comparison in this case. But it took decades to reintegrate the South and the North in, you know, after the Civil War. Reunification takes place just months after the wall comes down. Now, you could argue economic integration took much, much, much longer. But was it a surprise how quickly... East and West Germany became Germany. I mean, you'd think, you know, maybe five years from now we can unify, maybe 10 years from now we can unify. It was essentially instantaneous. Yeah, the, I mean, the process was stunningly quick and uh, perhaps in retrospect too quick. But, you know, Cole, uh, who was the chancellor at the time, saw an opening and he, he just pretty much stuffed his foot, his entire body through that hole. And, um, you know, he, he had the momentum and, um, the Russians, Gorbachev, um, did not um, uh, put up any real opposition to it. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, we do have unification that, that occurred in October of 1990, but it's been a, a, a tough road, and there's still, you know, major splits, I think, uh, economically between East and West, even though there's been so much infrastructure that's built in the East. I think there's, there's still a feeling of, of two Germanys. I agree, it went very quickly, and I think at the time it had to be done very quickly because there was a relatively small window of opportunity that all f allied, uh, all the allies and uh, plus the Soviet Union would agree on German unification. So it was basically, it was Chancellor Kohl and uh, President Bush Sr. who did all the paperwork and uh, the hard thinking on the German unification. Um, Soviets agreed, uh, and uh, the British and the French were not so pleased at the beginning. Uh, but nevertheless, there was this window of opportunity, and I think all nations used it. And that was a good, good idea. I mean, it's very easy to get lost in kind of age time spans, right? I mean, you think 45 years ago from right now was 1975, where many people still remember 1975. Certainly people look back at that as being not that long ago. Well, the World War, World War II had just ended 45 years before 1990. So it, 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 people still had that memory fresh in their mind. That's why we talk about the British and the French maybe being a little bit hesitant about a unified Germany, not because they think Hitler's coming back, just because you're in a position where it's not that ancient history anymore. Is that, was that a feeling among, certainly, some of the West? I mean, the Americans were ready, roaring, ready to go because we understood the strategic implications of a unified Germany against the Soviets, which is we knew what it was going to be. Um, but in Europe, in a broader sense, since you had traveled throughout, um, did you catch that as like, oh boy, the Germans unified? Absolutely. What could go wrong? Well, yeah. There, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're absolutely right because what seems like uh, ancient history back then really wasn't that that ancient, and there were back then many more people who lived through the war, um, certainly in Great Britain and Germany, France. I mean, when we think about the Berlin Wall, the Berlin Wall has now been gone longer than it existed. Mm -hmm. um, 
So uh, I think that's why there was a, a lot of concern. Uh, that's why, you know, the old saying that you had NATO to, you know, to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down, you know, I think there was some truth to, to, to that feeling. That's why there, there was, I guess, some ambivalence about seeing Germany unified mm -hmm. again. Well, Steve, let me ask you about this book, because this book, like we talked about, uh, it took you some time to put it together. Uh, you've been working on this for as long as I've known you. I mean, you kind of popped around when I first came to the museum right. to do some research here. So why is now, you already talked about some people passing away, so you're losing some sources for it. But what kind of new information, there's been books written about the Berlin Tunnel. What new information is available today to us now that didn't exist beforehand? What did you bring to the table that we haven't been able to see before this book? I mean, part of it was was finding people who were uh, willing to talk about this who hadn't been able to or hadn't been found before. I mean, we really didn't have any uh, side, for example, of, of the whole Army Corps of Engineers story. And, um, you know, I found some of those people in their, their papers, Bob Williamson, um, who ironically uh, died just uh, a, a few weeks after I, I'd interviewed him, but the, his son had his papers. and. In those papers were the names of other other Army Corps of Engineers uh, officers and soldiers who were involved in the project. Um, there were people like Eddie Kendall, who was the uh, the site communications uh, manager for the CIA at the uh, the tunnel installation, who'd never spoken about what had happened. But they 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 were kind of at that point now where they felt like, well, the the, the tunnel had been declassified in right. recent years. They didn't feel the same obligation to. To keep the secrets, there, there, um, you know, there's a lot of information. Uh, the NSA's role in this, they, you know, they had put out their own history that was recently declassified. I also found some, some interesting things in the JFK uh, Presidential Library um, concerning when the, the the tunnel's discovery and and uh, Alan Dulles's briefings to the the president about that. Um, so there was, uh, uh, I think, uh, a story that that put together what. Uh, the, the context of the time, you know, what the, the fear was, why the, uh, the U.S. And, and Great Britain wanted uh, access to these communications, and then putting that together with George Blake's story, right. um, I thought th there was room for a, a book that, uh, that tried to look at the whole thing holistically like that. Well, Bern, we were chatting before we, we started, and we were talking about a program that you guys had at the Allied Museum some, maybe 10 years ago where you had someone who'd worked on it that could barely really tell you anything. And how different it is today with so many people being willing to talk about it. Yeah, that's a crucial point, uh, willing to talk. And that is also the big plus of the book. Uh, because, uh, as you said, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we had people mentioned in the book at the Allied Museum uh, on the podium. And they were giving hints and a little bit of that, a little bit of this. But they didn't, the tells, uh, didn't tell the whole story. Uh, for example, a good example, Hugh Montgomery was uh, at the museum for the opening of the tunnel exhibition um, that was 12 years ago, and he was writing an article for the museum's uh, booklet, and he wrote this article in third person. So the young man in the article he described was himself, but he didn't say that. I, I knew it and my boss knew it, but uh, someone reading uh, the booklet uh, would not think that the young man in the article is the author, Hugh Montgomery. So he, uh, as I said, that's a big plus of the book. Uh, people are willing to talk and that is uh, the major thing. 
Do we know why it took so long for some of this stuff to get declassified? Why the, the, the secrecy took so much time? Because it was very public when the tunnel was uncovered. It was, it was, a, it was not something that really needed to be kept as classified as it was. Is there any indication from CIA, from NSA, from SIS, the British were involved in this as well, why this remained so secret for so long? Well, the, the British still haven't declassified well, yeah. it, actually. But um, I think part of it uh, is the whole question of Blake and mm -hmm. his betrayal of the tunnel and the whole question of of the information that was, was gathered. Was it then tainted? I think, um, you know, part of it was uh, um, that that question hadn't been fully answered, maybe. And, and uh, maybe people were afraid of what the answers might be. Right. I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm going to get to Blake in a second because that's a really, really fascinating part of this book. But, but let me ask you about, you have a section, uh, you talked about a, music, a, a tunnel exhibit, and you helped us get ours. So if anyone's been to the, mm -hmm. the, the International Spy Museum, we have a section of the Berlin Tunnel that came via a huge assist from the Allied Museum. Was your section something you sought out as a museum uh, piece, or was it something you just kind of stumbled into because someone came to you? with, hey, I found this in my backyard. Because I think the story of where these pieces went is really fascinating. Our major piece uh, uh, we digged out in 1997. And uh, because a lot of uh, housing, there was a housing construction area there. And while they were digging, they, they found this uh, tunnel segments. Uh, we immediately know that is something for the museum. And uh, we got our big piece uh, from the 90. 97 um, uh, excavation and we got another big piece uh, from the 2000s when uh, 2005 when the Berlin wanted to extend the Autobahn to the uh, new airport in Schönefeld which is still not open um, <laughs> so they discovered another huge piece and again we immediately know this is a historical artifact we have to have it and then, as we later will learn, uh, we found a lot of more pieces uh, 100 kilometers away uh, in the country of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, and they were uh, deep in the forest. But that's another story. So, so yes, uh, as far as soon as we noticed uh, there are original uh, pieces from the Berlin Spy Tunnel, we knew this is an historical artifact, and we'd like to have it. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
Well, you said that's another part of the story, but that's a fun part of the story in that we now know, or at least we knew recently, that the Berlin Tunnel, when it was broken up, was actually not melted down into build tanks or anything else. It was sent all over East Germany to be used by farmers and by people as storage silos and places for them to put concrete or to put seed or other things, you know, um, that are still probably there's a lot of pieces that are yet to be discovered. Well, a lot of them uh, was melted. Uh, the pieces that would be around today are probably somewhere deep in the earth. Uh, but it was pure accident uh, that uh, those uh, segments of the tunnel uh, were rediscovered in Pasewalk and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. And most of them were used as shelters for maneuvers of the National Volksarmee uh, in the GDR. And because they held the maneuver twice a year in the same forest, they kept those um, steel tubes underground and use them for commando shelters and whatsoever. So let, let's talk about Operation Gold itself, the, the, the code name for the operation of the Berlin Tunnel, because you, you hinted at this a little bit, Steve, that conventional wisdom at the time and, and up until very recently had this is a monumental failure of intelligence for American and British intelligence, as not only did Blake, who we'll talk about in more in depth in a second, not only did Blake let the Soviets know this was happening from the very beginning, but it allowed the Soviets to pass along garbage information uh, to the United States and to the British for years and years. You seem to be really, really challenging that um, in the book, saying that, no, there's a lot of really good information that came across. My question for you is, how did they see it at the time? What was the conversation in the late 1950s, early 1960s about the take based on now some of the declassified documents that you've seen? Well, I mean, it, until Blake's arrest, they were absolutely over the moon at what had right. been collected because, I mean, the volume of it was almost a problem. There was so much that, you know, they were still processing the information for two years a after the, the tunnel was uncovered. But the uh, material itself was, was a gold mine about, uh, you have to remember there was no U-2 when the tunnel uh, was in operation. There were no satellites. so. Uh, we knew virtually nothing about the Red Army, and so they were getting an enormous amount of information about the Red Army's capabilities, plans, maneuvers, uh, command structure, you name it. So, you know, I spoke to someone like um, Raymond Gartoff, who was involved in the, uh, the whole uh, CIA national estimates, and you know, he went through the tunnel material as it was coming in, and he, you know, he said it was absolutely invaluable to, to what they uh, were able to, to put together about uh, the Soviets' capabilities. Now, after after Blake's arrest um, in 1961, the CIA learned very quickly that Blake had blown the tunnel, and so there was enormous consternation about that. Um, but and of course, there were investigations done, and the um, the conclusion from at least within the small circle, you know, involving uh, Frank uh, Rollette. And, and Harvey and some of the, the people that were really involved in the tunnel was that, um, you know, given the, the volume of information they had, it would have been impossible to, uh, right. to plant disinformation because they had uh, the, the East German Postal Ministry so wired that the Soviets would have been unable to even transfer communications off these cables without them knowing about it. So they knew that, you know, the, the lines had not been transferred. They knew that you know the same people were using these cables, 
they knew that if the Soviets had put in disinformation, uh, there was so much real information coming through that the disinformation would have been quickly proved to be false. Right, and that, that would have potentially burned Blake, and that, was, of course, was that, the thing that the was Soviets That was a paramount were, con yep. concern. As it turns out, uh, we know from um, uh, Blake's primary handler, uh, Sergei Kondrashov, that keeping Blake protected was the primary concern, and with good reason. He was uh, immensely well-placed, and, and just uh, they didn't have Kim Philby anymore as a, as a source uh, within uh, MI6, and, and, and Blake was a, a, an agent, as they called him, Agent Diamond. He was worth quite a bit to them. They thought it would be worth more than the tunnel. And you mentioned that this was pre the U-2, uh, but it was also after uh, a huge source of signals intelligence is cut off uh, in the late 1940s when we had been enjoying reading their mail very easily breaking their codes very easily, and all of a sudden, actually we call this Black Friday in October 1948, where all of a sudden, nothing. And this is a time period leading up to the decision to build the tunnel, where there's desperation really involved in here. It's like, we know nothing about what's coming out and what's going on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I mean, not only did we know nothing, the Soviets were, were getting more and more capable. I mean, they in this during that time, they'd exploded their first nuclear weapons, and now by now they had a hydrogen uh, bomb as well. So, uh, we knew nothing. We knew less than we'd, we'd known before, and the Soviets were getting more capable. So the desperation is, is the right word. And uh, you know, Black Friday had been a real disaster um, because we were no longer getting that information. You've got stats to throw at us. I love it. Uh, <laughs> so you're quite right. And uh, um, besides the fact that there were only a few, if no gold nuggets of information in the tunnel. The amount of information, uh, the 440,000 telephone conversations the CIA and the British now had on record and on tape, uh, the amount of information is so incredible and it's all those little bits and pieces uh, now the Western intelligence could put together to have a better picture of the overall situation. And I think it was Murphy who once uh, told me that uh, all, always in conversations between officers' wives phoning from East Germany back home to Moscow, uh, also in this kind of conversation, you get a lot of information out of it. Uh, when the wife is complaining what the husband is telling her, if he's satisfied, he's drinking too much, uh, the situation, uh, soldier situation, East Berlin, a lot of those small bits and pieces uh, you can gain out of those uh, 440,000 telephone right. conversations and you get a better picture then. Yeah, it was really, it was like a mosaic uh, was being pieced together bit by bit and, and those conversations which were later sort of, you know, some people say, oh, they're getting just the office gossip and, and but that's how they pieced together the, the first uh, hints that uh, about Khrushchev's uh, secret speech right. um, came from some of these tunnel intercepts and you know people who were in Moscow making phone calls back to uh, you know their wives or husbands in uh, in Berlin about something had happened. Uh, so it was it really wasn't one dynamite secret at all. It was really just this vast um, amount of information that kept them busy uh, for years. Right. In context, I mean, it's important for people now to understand. We've talked about how closed a society this was to where it was almost impossible to collect human intelligence, and that was certainly true for the first decade 
of the Cold War because of people like Kim Philby burning every single human intelligence operation. But it's not just that it was hard to collect information on them. It's how easy it was for them to collect on us. Yeah. And so it was this just massive discrepancy between the wide open West and Britain was a little bit better, but the United States was just open. And so the, the, the kind of difference, the gap in intelligence was dramatic. It wasn't just that it was hard in one direction, but that it was so blatantly obvious how easy it was in the other way uh, that it made life very difficult for those at CIA. Yeah, and the Soviets had been very effective immediately upon, even before the war was, World War II was over, about flooding the West with agents, sleepers, and, and you know, just recruiting people. And the CIA uh, and SIS were so far behind in that game uh, to start with. So they, their sources of human in intelligence were so, so far superior to ours. And, and Berlin was really the only real window, along with Vienna for a, for a while, that the West had to, to being sort of cheek and jowl next to the, the Soviets. And, and that's where, why you had these opportunities that presented themselves uh, both for human collection, but also this this technical collection with with the yeah. the tunnel. Because everything else had closed up. You you had potential in Czechoslovakia until forty eight, and then Vienna until fifty five, and like everything just kept kind of one after the next. The other avenues of possibly gathering information disappeared. Yeah. Um, and but even of course after you develop the U two, even after you have overhead reconnaissance, it still doesn't substitute for good human intelligence on the ground, and that's why Berlin was the center of espionage until, you know, all the way up through 1989 and even beyond. And, and I think, you know, Bernd, you're seeing a lot of that, you know, certainly your book's about a lot of that, but you're seeing, you know, a lot of that in kind of now people looking back 30, 40 years into the 80s and the 70s of Berlin being such a, a key component to intelligence during the Cold War, if not the most important city, you know, even superseding Washington and Moscow. Yes, and please keep in mind that until um, the wall was built in August 61, Berlin was an open city. Right. You can just take the S-Bahn to go from the west to the east and from the east to the west, and it's it was so easy. And uh, as long as as long as you don't carry two suitcases with you, and you would not even be uh, checked. Yeah. Uh, so it was so easy. It, it, it uh, was also so very easy for the, the Western um, uh, um, agents to get abroad, contact their people in East Germany, and of course uh, the other agency did the same in the West. So it was a very open city, and that made it the capital of the spies at the time. Yeah, I mean, George Blake said himself that it was as easy for him to go from West Berlin to, to East Berlin as it was in London to go from Piccadilly Circus to Hammersmith. Or, yeah. Well, let's talk about Blake because we've talked about him a couple times and that's one of the, I guess one of the major coups that you had for this book was actually sitting down, I believe twice, with George Blake in Russia where he still lives, still alive, with 92 years old or something to that effect now, um, and getting in the talk to this kind of, it, it, it Blake is one of the big guys who'd be like going over and chatting with Philby or like, you know, going over and, you know, if, depending on what side of the fence you are, going over and sitting in Snowden's, you know, <laughs> in a hotel room and having a conversation with him. But Blake is one of the most notorious spies in Western history. So how was it to kind of s to talk to someone like George Blake? You know, it was interesting. Um, I mean, I didn't and 
I actually um, went to Moscow to to try to to meet with him. In the end, he was actually ill while I was there, so I ended up um, interviewing by phone. His his, uh, you know, we set up a, a telephone, uh, well, two telephone conversations. But um, you know, Blake is is very sort of uh, mild mannered. You know, he doesn't. Uh, I get, he sort of uh, plays down in a way um, what he's done, uh, the role he has in, in Cold War history. Um, I think. Um, you know, he he was uh, he's now 96 years old. His his health isn't great, um, but I think he um, you know talking to him was was of course uh, pretty exciting. And I asked I was po- mostly focused on the tunnel itself. I wanted to get details about what he was thinking when he was uh, handing over information to uh, Kondrashov about the tunnel and you know why whether he was confident they were going to protect his identity and. Um, you know, he was uh, he was a bit blasé about it, but uh, I, I think I could detect a, a, a bit of, of pride <laughs> at what he'd done. What 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 was it? Anything surprised you about him? How British was he still? Well, his his accent is very uh, Dutch. His um, but he still you know speaks perfect Dutch. He he, he sounded, you know, his his mannerisms were, were pretty British. You know, his as a sort of polite, somewhat um, self-deprecating manner um i think he uh it's pretty clear that he he misses aspects of great britain i mean he said he said basically that he still feels in a way like he's english and doesn't feel like he's betrayed the country i think um in some ways um you know he feels more dutch or english than he does russian at the same time um you know he's obviously acclimated pretty well to to life over there right he's been there 50 50 years. years yeah um, anything surprise you about what he said? Did he say anything that jumped out? Well, I mean, uh, what what he said about um, he was he more or less admitted that he didn't think that there could have been any disinformation uh, place that you know, and he more or less thought that uh, the idea that uh, the you know the Soviets were able to to uh, detour communications to to other lines. Uh, uh, just wouldn't have made sense because you know the Americans had had the uh, um, the East German Ministry uh, so well wired. So he um, he he agrees basically that the the tunnel uh, was a success for the, for the West. But uh, as to the question of whether the the KGB got more out of it, I, I think he was uh, you know, he would more or less modestly agree with that because right. they were able to, to protect him and that they they got more information from Blake than. The West got from the tunnel. Well, let me ask you about another interesting personality in this book that throughout uh, is that Bill Harvey, William Harvey, who um, it's hard not to like Bill Harvey, regardless of what you think about assassination plots or anything on the rougher side of CIA, because he truly was the opposite of the first generation of CIA officers, though those coming out of the OSS. He's not a you know silver spoon baby, Ivy League educated. He's a Midwesterner. He's not a suave, even though he's the American James Bond. He's overweight. He drinks too much. He smokes too much. He's not in good health. He's not coming out of the ocean like Daniel Craig in a pair of small... I mean, well, he might, but you don't want him coming out of the ocean in a small pair of bathing suit. And he's gruff, and he curses, and he's just not refined. But he's kind of the guy who gets stuff done. And he really is kind of the foundation of this tunnel story in Operation Gold. Um, 
how hard was it? And it's still difficult because Harvey was involved in some really black stuff. How hard was it to get like the full story of Harvey's role within the Operation Gold? You know, um, my dad worked for Harvey along, you know, worked for David Murphy. He passed away a long time ago, but um, a lot of uh, uh, my family's friends uh, worked under Harvey. You know, both my godparents, for example, were, were part of uh, the whole Berlin scene. And as we were saying earlier, the this generation was now kind of more willing to to tell stories and, and talk about um, Harvey. Um, you know, <laughs> one of our dearest uh, friends in Berlin told the story about how she was at a dinner party and uh, Harvey, having had too much to drink, more or less passed out on her shoulder, you know, between the second and third course. Um, the stories about uh, Harvey, there, there's a, uh, you know, one of the, the biographies that was done about uh, Harvey by uh, Bay Stockton, uh, you know, had, he had a, a wealth of information, and um, going through his files out in Santa Barbara, I was able to, you know, find some of these people, and there's also, you know, communications that, that uh, um, you know, emails and letters that they, they wrote back and forth, uh, and uh, C.G. Harvey, his wife, uh, maintained communication with a lot of these friends in the years uh, after her husband died. So there was, a, there was a lot of information out in Santa Barbara about, uh, about Harvey's life and uh, you know some of the operations he was involved with and, and, and a lot of detail about Berlin in particular. Is there some bitterness within the family? Because Harvey clearly was a trailblazer at CIA, but he was not named one of the trailblazers at CIA, right? So he was not you know, held up as being one of the founding kind of reasons the CIA is what it's, but it, he was. And I think it, it's politics that got in the way. There was a, um, a lot of Probably the Kennedy nonsense got in the way of that. For sure. Um, is there a more more willingness to talk now because of people who might actually want to tell a more balanced, objective story of Bill Harvey than what has kind of been the boogeyman perception of Harvey back in the past? Perhaps, but most of those people are, are gone now. Yeah. And and yes, there was a lot of bitterness uh, in Harvey's family and people who knew him, Hugh Montgomery, uh, for example, who you know became one of the you know the most respected and beloved officers in the agency's history, and he, he only died uh, two years ago. He felt that you know Harvey was a trailblazer and, and had and been treated shabbily. Uh, in fact, he wrote that to C. G. Harvey um, after his death, after Harvey's death. Um, but you know Hugh Montgomery's gone now, so most of the people who who would argue that are gone. So it's it's going to be really up to history to 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 try to give Harvey his due and, you know, the uh, things that he did wrong, too. I mean, because there's, right. there's, there are plenty of, you know, uh, as you allude to with the whole uh, Cuba and Cuba, lots else. of Cuba. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's that's why he's always been an interest of me, because the a lot of the, I guess it was Castro's bodyguard says that we tried to kill him 638 times. 600 of those were probably Bill Harvey concocting <laughs> some plan to, to take out Fidel Castro. Um, let me ask you, Bern, as a from a kind of a foreign perception of Bill Harvey, what was it, you know, this is someone obviously who was integral to espionage uh, in the Cold War in Berlin. How was he perceived outside of the United States? Well, we learned more about Harvey when Stockton wrote his book. And before he, he Stockton died, I think, a couple of months after his book uh, right. turned out. So... Uh, 
that was the first time that we had uh, um, a better idea of this person, uh, Bill, Bill Harvey. But uh, coming back to um, Steve Hogel's book, um, it's good that he, at the end of the book, is telling what happened to um, those people who were involved in the Berlin uh, spy tunnel. And uh, I was amazed um, to read that Harvey was going from hero to zero and was dropped like a hot potato when they discovered that Blake was a Soviet spy. And his uh, British opposite, uh, Peter Lunn, mm. uh, made a brilliant career. <laughs> so here's the question. Why is uh, the, w uh, the American guy responsible for the tunnel uh, dropped like a hot potato and the British guy made a brilliant career? So uh, that's a question we would not answer, but it's uh, good to, to see that, uh, what happened after those guys afterwards. Yeah, Harvey made a lot of enemies. I was going to say Harvey pissed a lot of people off. Is that really <laughs> what, what it came down to? Right. I mean, that's a little bit like, you know, you can, you can be in charge for a long time, but people will find a way to dance in their grave if yeah. you piss a lot of people off. You know, Hoover certainly had that fate, and people like Barry and others, not to compare Harvey with Barry, but he had, he, he, there were a lot of people that weren't sad to see him go. Um, you know, he's always, again, because of the Cuba connection, always been kind of near and dear to my heart, and then he died the day I was born. Hmm. So it was one of these really interesting, like, you know, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of neat when yeah. I was growing up. Like, my dad was into kind of, I'm not saying I'm Harvey reincarnated, but was kind of into <laughs> that idea of looking at the people who die when you were born. I'm like, oh, Bill Harvey. That's kind of interesting. Um, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the tunnel itself because we really haven't, we've kind of gone around it. Because I think what people don't understand is what kind of an engineering marvel this was. Because people get so caught up in the George Blake side and whether it was disinformation or whether it was, but just the idea of the problems that were faced trying to build this massive tunnel um, without being caught um, when things like the winter got involved and body heat <laughs> and melted snow and water and everything else. So, uh, Steve, you can start because I know Barney know a lot about this too. If you kind of like some of the, you, your narrative is great in the book, kind of where you talk through like the process of doing this, but. Um, this has to be looked back as being one of the, the great engineering challenges that was overcome by American and British intelligence. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to remember this is a quarter mile long tunnel, so it's as long, you know, as long as the Empire State Building is high, and you know, it was it had to be hand dug, but it had to to be dug through this loose soil that you know was very prone to collapse. Um, they couldn't use any uh, mechanical equipment and. Um, the Corps of Engineers guys who were, were selected for this mission were just, you know, they weren't really told what they were going to do. They were brought in, uh, selected, you know, one by one, almost like, uh, you know, the different pe people in Ocean's Eleven or, so <laughs> or something, and uh, brought to the Pentagon and told that you're going to dig this tunnel uh, through enemy terrain and it's got to be done in secret. Uh, so, yeah, they, um, uh, the, the way they did it, with, without the, the modern surveying equipment you have now with, with GPS and all that, they had to um, figure out exactly how long to make it and, and make sure that it would come up directly below the, the boxes, the junction boxes right. where, where the, uh, the cables were. And so they had a heck of a time uh, doing that and eventually were able to position, have somebody in the East German ministry park a truck right on the road and then use their transits to, to uh, to gauge the the right distance and, and so forth, so and then you know the the steel liner that they they used to line the tunnel that all that had to be specially made and then 
brought to to Berlin without raising suspicion, and that that was quite an operation in itself. And put down into the tunnel without raising suspicion, right. and all that dirt had to go somewhere. All that and dirt, all that. And, and so the brilliant thing they did there was to build a warehouse on top, uh, you know, that they could hide hide the uh, the soil in, and then uh, um, then they decided, you know, what the heck, let's make this a real radar. Uh, station, so you know they had all these antennas and and uh, dishes on top that uh, kept the Soviets and East German uh, guards busy watching above while the real action right. was going on below. Well, I, I mentioned snow. There's a wonderful story burned about how they almost got themselves caught because of something maybe they should have thought of ahead of time, but it was something that was a bit of a surprise uh, to to realize. And we actually um, one of the one of the, these guys did oral histories. They did interviews, and one of the interviews is really fascinating about they, the, when they realized this, how fast they thought they were cooked, because it's it's pretty obvious when you think about it. Well, I just want to mention that uh, the logistics uh, of the whole operation was just just great, and uh, all the problems uh, when they appear. Uh, were solved. Uh, one problem was groundwater, for example. Uh, they had uh, they touched groundwater um, much earlier than they thought. Another one is uh, the heat inside the tunnel, especially when you have a lot of technical equipment, all this pre-amplifier room equipment that is in the tunnel, producing a lot of heat. I think in the 50s, even more than today. <laughs> so, uh, and the heat was a problem when it began to snow, and so you could uh, literally uh, see that it was a, um, a, a two-meter-long long line, uh, and where the snow, all the, the the beginning of the snow was uh, pretty early melting. So, like today, when uh, today you can watch the same phenomenon uh, when you know that there is a. Um, under underwater, under warm underwater pipe for heating, and you can see uh, in Germany, you can see that uh, when it's snowing, that under the snow there's a, a kind of warm water pipe because uh, it, it's the, it's melting there. Well, yeah. In this case, it, it led directly from the American installation all the way over into East Berlin, right <laughs> underneath the the junction box. It was pretty obvious that oh, they had yeah. paid and, attention to it. Yeah, and Eugene Kovalenko's stories about that, and you know everybody running around their like a you know a chicken with their head cut off, but. I mean, they did realize it was going to generate heat, and they, they did pump in air conditioning uh, into the, the equipment room directly below the East German Road. But what they didn't think about was how all that heat was going to go down the length of the tunnel. So there wasn't enough air conditioning in the, the tunnel itself, and that's what created this arrow pointing directly to the American warehouse, yeah. and <laughs> that scene of chaos, <laughs> which is really funny. Well, let, me, let me ask about this. We have a, this is a great new information that we have from lots of sources. Uh, you were able to bring in documents, you were able to bring in interviews, you were bring all the things that we just didn't have before. What's still missing? What, what don't we know that would complete this picture of the Berlin Tunnel? Well, we still need more from the Soviet side. I mean, we're, we're lucky we have, um, you know, Kondashov's account, and he, during that sort of uh, uh, golden period uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, before Putin came to power, he was able to work with David Murphy, who was the uh, later the Berlin base chief, and get some documents about uh, what was going on the KGB side. But we don't know at all that, that that's the whole picture. Um, certainly, there's there's probably a lot more there, and the chances of, of seeing that information anytime soon is is probably uh, a little bit mm -hmm. scant. And, and you know, we don't have. Um, there's a fair amount in the Imperial War Museum in in London from Blake's trial, 
so there's some material from the British side, but we we also don't know everything that the uh, you know from the SIS because mm -hmm. they they still right. uh, haven't, as we said earlier, even acknowledged this operation. How much from the East German side? I know, I know that we've seen a lot of it, but the, you know it's still somewhat chaotic. It's trying to piece together everything we can from from the East German side. Oh, the East German side, they were not so heavily involved. Even Misha Wolf said uh, he had no clue about the tunnels. So yeah. you wouldn't find much in the East German archives. It was a project uh, exclusively, exclusively done by the KGB. And uh, they are the ones who decided uh, who is the one who will know about the tunnel and not, and the East Germans were not involved. Uh, but another point I am um, asking myself is uh, where did all the technical equipment went to? Mm -hmm. So for many, many years we thought uh, after the dismantling of the tunnel on the eastern side it was melted or whatsoever. So until a couple of years it popped up in uh, somewhere in East Germany. And uh, now maybe um, in another couple of years uh, the technical equipment will pop up somewhere in um, Eastern Europe <laughs> in yeah, the museum. Or that's wherever. a really good question, yeah. and, and no doubt the uh, the Soviets took a lot back to retro engineer and right. just try to figure out um, you know what the equipment was. Because the Americans like, cleared out as much as they could, but they couldn't clear out everything. They, yeah. they didn't have much time right. really because yeah. the discovery happened quickly yeah. and uh, so most of that equipment uh, was abandoned and on the other hand I mean a lot of it I mean it was high-end but a lot of it was commercially available equipment that they were using of course the, th the, the material the, the equipment that was in the American warehouse of course that was removed but all the material the equipment that was directly below the, um, the East German Road East right. Berlin Road was 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 uh, I'm sure studied very carefully and could be <laughs> You know, in some in some uh, laboratory, <laughs> still in Moscow somewhere, for all we know. Well, I mean, particularly since the the Russians really weren't work, working with microprocessors and anything advanced until the '80s and late '80s, so it might have been reverse engineered for a couple decades yeah. as they were working their way through it. Yeah. So, uh, Bern, let me let me ask you a little bit about your, the museum, the Allied Museum, because um, you know, uh, visitors over there. Uh, to Berlin, and a lot of Americans find their way over in that part of the world. Uh, can you convince them why they should spend time popping into the museum, other than it's free and it's awesome? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's there, or kind of what, what kind of things will they see in the permanent exhibit? What kind of things are you thinking in the next year or two for temporary exhibits, if you can tell us about that? Uh, we have two buildings. Uh, in one building, we're dealing with the period 1945 to 1950, with a focus on um, the Berlin Airlift. And the second building, we are dealing uh, with a time until unification, uh, and uh, in there, there's the Berlin Spy Tunnel. And also, we have uh, one of the three original Checkpoint Charlies. So, uh, plus um, Berlin Airlift plane, uh, plus pieces of the Berlin Wall and a watchtower. So, a lot of uh, huge artifacts for technical interested guys and a lot of uh, personal stories uh, for the years that follow. So everybody who's interested in Cold War history, who's interested in Berlin history, combined with uh, Allied history, they should come to the Allied Museum. It was called the Allied Museum because it was kind of a joint venture, the British, the Americans, and the Germans, and that, that's where, um, did I miss somebody, the French? Um, and that's where, yeah, sorry French. Um, <laughs> And that's where you kind of get this kind of wonderful confluence of really great artifacts, like Checkpoint Charlie, which you wouldn't think would be in like a Berlin museum, um, with 
you know, the, the, the great stories from all different sides, from the French, the British, the Americans, and the Germans as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I can vouch that it's a great museum, having done research there. That, I mean, the tunnel exhibit itself, by itself, is, is worth uh, seeing, but the, the, whole, the whole package is, is fantastic. Well, Steve Vogel is author of Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. This is just out now. By the time you're listening to this, it'll only be out a week. Uh, it is the most complete analysis of not only the Berlin Tunnel and the construction of the tunnel, but all the stuff that goes around it, whether it comes from George Blake or, or CIA inter-office politics with the NSA and everything in between. Uh, it's 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 absolutely eye-opening with, with the new information that's inside of it, which, as a historian, it's always fun to see, like, wow, you got stuff that no one else has ever been able to get before. Bern von Koska is the curator of the Allied Museum. Again, if you're ever in Berlin, this is a no-brainer nonstop. You have to go there. Uh, and hopefully... Uh, his book, which is on the table right now, but in German, will eventually be translated into English so people like me who studied Russian and not German can read it uh, because it, it's absolutely uh, the insider look from the guy who really is in the middle of all the, the capital of espionage during the Cold War. Um, get a chance to look at that in English. So I'm rooting for that. So, Bern, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today on SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.